You may have heard about attachment styles, adult attachment styles that affect how you relate to the people closest to you. And attachment styles and technology use is just one of the topics that I cover in the adulthood chapter of Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. I'm Elaine Casket. I'm the author of Reboot, and this is another of the special Reboot-linked podcast episodes that correspond to each of the chapters in the book. It's been an exciting couple of weeks for Reboot. It was published in the UK there was a launch party, and there's been lots of publicity. Television, radio, print, lots to talk about, and I'll be linking to some of those Reboot-related pieces in the Substack newsletter for Reboot Your Life on Tech. My guest on this week's podcast is Kara Fletcher. She's at the University of Regina, which is in Saskatchewan, Canada, and I found her because she too was interested in and had done work on romantic attachment, attachment styles, and its interrelationship with technology use. She's currently writing a book about the impact of hustle culture on love relationships. We didn't get a chance to talk about this in the podcast. I'm really quite sorry that we didn't, but I will put her website where you can find out more information about her work in the show notes as well and in the newsletter that's going out on Substack. Without further ado, I'm going to let Kara introduce herself and her work. I think this is an absolutely fascinating discussion of technology use and relationships, so enjoy. So my name is Kara Fletcher, and I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Regina, uh, which is in Saskatchewan, Canada. And uh, I'm also the director of our Social Work Research Center there. Perfect. And so the reason that I was inspired to get in touch with you was because in the young adulthood chapter of Reboot, I was talking about romantic relationships and technology use. And one part of that chapter was looking at adult attachment styles and how those might interface with a couple's technology use. And could you say a little bit more about what adult attachment styles are for the uninitiated? Sure. Well, I think adult attachment styles were built off of um, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth's initial attachment styles, looking at attachment styles in children. So uh, basically, developing that further to to look at romantic attachments and really realizing that a lot of the same dynamics play out in terms of security and insecurity uh, in adult relationships. Um, so they might look slightly different and I, and they're called different things depending on uh, depending on who you talk to, what they're called is slightly different. But I think that idea, those patterns of insecurity and security play out very much in the same ways in terms of how we link uh, with our romantic partners in later life and even in other close relationships as well. Mm. And so there's a, diff a number of different types of insecure attachment styles as well. So as you say, they're called different things in different places. You can, people have parsed them in different ways. Um, but they include, I think, avoidant attachment, um, anxious attachment, sometimes ambivalent or disorganized attachment. What am I missing? No, I think that's it. And I think the ambivalent or disorganized is the one that's always kind of called different 
different things, but um, it's kind of, we can think of it as I like, I like ambivalent because it's kind of moving between that insecure, anxious and avoidant way of relating, um, which you can kind of, it's harder to get a grasp of. So some adults struggle with when they've had particularly early, early childhood trauma. I think you see that they sometimes have more of an ambivalent attachment style where it's like, oh, is this avoidant? No, now it's now we're seeing some anxious going through. Um, and it seems I think ambivalence a good a good term um, one that certainly I would use I think to describe and even though there is some discussion amongst academics and people who study these kinds of things about how straight of a line we can draw between young attachment styles or infancy attachment styles and adult attachment styles that might come into play in for example romantic or significant relationships um it certainly seems to be the case that a lot of people, adult people trying to work out, you know, what is what goes on in my relationships and how I relate to people, it seems to be a concept, attachment styles, that appeals because there's a lot of popular literature on it. There's blogs and information online and the attachment project and a very popular sort of relationship self-help book called attached. And there's certainly something that really seems to capture people's imagination, certainly, and people will relate to attachment styles. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm just, so I'm, I'm also a, a couples therapist. As I see with the couples that I work with, um, a real attachment, talking about relationship dynamics, using an attachment framework, I think is, is really helpful for people, because it kind of helps them understand some of the patterns that they get stuck in with their, uh, with their partner. Um, And so yeah, the concepts are certainly I think people grab onto them. And um, I'm thinking of um, like emotionally focused therapy is now couples therapy is, is very much drawing from attachment theory and um the creator of that sue johnson likens attachment style to like languages right like um so if you want to change your attachment style it's like learning a new language it's doable but very very hard to do um and so i think that sometimes talking about it that way is helpful to people too like why can't i just change this way that i'm relating to my partner um well it's actually something that takes a lot of practice and and kind of work over time to kind of change your base feelings of safety and security, even in your later relationships. Mm -hmm. And it involves a phase of getting out ahead of those instinctive gut reactions, behaving as though you are differently attached or behaving perhaps as though you are more securely attached. And then over time, the that can be integrated more perhaps, but sometimes, especially when under periods of stress or the relationship being under stress, like all of us, when we're under stress or when we're distressed, we default (laughs) to the things that feel the most natural. Ooh, I think we just froze one second. Oh, quick moment of freezing. Yeah. I was talking about the default things that we go into default modes but when we're better resourced, I guess, we're more able perhaps to perform and work on different kinds of attachment styles in our relationship with awareness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And attachments, I suppose, styles are well known enough that certainly, I don't know what your experience is, but I have a certain percentage of couples who come in to see me already using 
the attachment language, maybe even having encountered the adult attachment questionnaire online or something like that. Absolutely. I think people will often come in and say like, I'm anxious and he's avoidant and, uh, you know, and, and we're stuck in that. They're stuck in that cycle together. So for sure, I think it's it's a language that people, um, I think, can easily understand and that fits, like it fits their experience and and what they're, what they're struggling with. Yeah. And so in terms of the interface with technology use, one of the things that I spoke about in the book was how people with different kinds of attachment styles might fall into using technology, whether it's, for example, two examples I gave in the book have to do with an anxiously attached individual maybe doing some intimate partner hacking, snooping, surreptitious checking of the partner's devices or accounts because they're feeling anxious about the relationship. They want that anxiety assuaged. They're having trouble trusting what their partner is telling them was one example. Another example, an avoidantly attached person who might become overwhelmed by emotional intimacy, who might actually retreat into a device or do a bit of fubbing, like phone snubbing in an attempt to just kind of regulate to calibrate the overwhelm down. So those were two examples that I was playing around with in the book to give illustrations. Tell me a little bit about when you got interested in this subject of the interface between technology use and adult attachment style. Sure. I think it, well, it came directly from my practice, from kind of the stories of, of clients that I was working with talking about one with a big one was texting like constant texting and so one partner saying like I can't even focus at work you're texting me like eight times every 10 minutes I need to my boss has noticed they're getting upset with me and you get upset when I don't respond but like I can't I'm trying to work and uh, the more kind of anxiously attached partner would would be upset by this because they got some sort of soothing from the like constant responses of the other partner. So a lot of a lot of conflict around texting, um, or also like having conflict over text. So um, like not really being able to communicate a particular feeling or issue in person, but bringing it up, initiating it over text that was another one and then yeah certainly the like checking particularly in cases where there'd been infidelity or or trust breaches or like you know we want to call them attachment ruptures um then we would see yeah a lot of like taking of the phone looking um these are all i think themes you hear all the time and then certainly the one you're referring to i i like the the fuck that you call it fubbing fubbing (laughs) phone snuffing Lots of, lots of phone snubbing. So, um, you know, I can't talk to you. You're always on your phone. Um, I'm trying to deal with the kids and you're on your phone. You're sitting there playing angry birds or whatever it is that you're playing on your phone or on your computer and, um, that disconnect that comes from it. So all of that were, those were like central themes, certainly in my, in my practice. And so what we decided to do was to, interview um couples or people in relationships about technology and their their thoughts about the impact of it on their relationship so we interviewed 44 different people um and the, the criteria was that they had to have been in um 
been in a relationship for over a year um, and they had to think of that te- like that technology had an impact on their relationship didn't have to be negative positive or negative um, and so we interviewed them about their experiences and then we also asked them some questions uh, from the uh, adult attachment uh, interview to kind of get a sense of general attachment style as we were doing it um so yeah it was it was very interesting and i think the thing that came out of it was people were also very keen to discuss the benefits of technology to their relationships um so they didn't really want to categorize it as this all or nothing negative it's bad for my relationship thing they were also very um clear that there's some real benefits to using technology to kind of amplify or improve relationship connection. So it was, it was interesting. And I wasn't truthfully, wasn't expecting that to come through so clearly as a result. What was it, do you think about whatever preconceptions you might've had that led you to not expect the positive side of the coin? Probably because in my work i'm seeing couples who are coming and talking about challenges not about like oh here's all the ways in which um the ways in which technology helps our relationship so i'm really seeing the negative more problematic side in my work so and and like kind of getting a flavor of like just how pervasive those problems are and so yeah hearing this other side of it was great because like yeah of course like the, we all benefit from technology we all benefit from that instant connection i mean you know we we're talking from many 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 miles away from each other right now thanks yeah to we're talking on different days you're in tomorrow on different for days. me yeah. and you i'm in yesterday yeah. for you yes. <laughs> yeah. Future. so yeah it's it's kind of uh it's it's amazing, but so I think it's important to have that balanced discussion, right? Like it's not it's not all bad for for attachment. It, it can be helpful as well. And you you mentioned that self regulatory piece. I think there is something useful there as well, right? Like um, that kind of soothing that it can bring people, um, whether it's like to detach or whether it's to connect. I don't know that we can kind of see it as all all negative when we're thinking about regulation i think it can be actually quite positive too oh absolutely and a a big core message of the book and what i'm trying to get across is that while technology isn't neutral per se because there's lots of forces within it that are not neutral we it does contain almost all the possibilities the broad spectrum um And it's really about what we're opting to do, various macro and micro choices that we're making around technology all the time, whether we're using it in service of connection or in service of disconnection, in service of transparency, in service of, you know, clouding something. So there's, it it can go any direction. It's very much within our hands. So I think it's really interesting that the couples were very keen to underscore it. When you look back, and I didn't look at the whole study in terms of your reflecting on the methods and the methodology that you used, but in retrospect, when you were thinking about how you designed this study, did you look back on it and think, oh, we've skewed our our questions or our are the design in favor in favor of like almost kind of looking for 
or assuming the negative or did you manage to ha have a kind of balanced design where you really left it very open for them to bring both positive and negative kinds of experiences? Yeah, I think it's, well, it's a qualitative study. So I think it it's always like very tricky to have it be completely, <laughs> completely yeah. balanced without bias. Right. But because um, you were you were collecting the information through conversation with people who had participated in the study. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We was it always think... both? Sorry to interrupt you, but was it always both members of the couple that you interviewed? Not necessarily. So sometimes it was just one. We all, we got quite a few pairs, but um, that wasn't a requirement. So sometimes it was just one partner talking about it. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, we, I think we tried in the recruitment to be clear, like to be have like a neutral statement about like we want to talk about technology and 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 how it kind of impacts or plays out in your romantic relationships. But yeah, I would say maybe, you know, there's some elements of it that probably that were probably uh biased be because of our anticipation, right? Because of our hypothesis about what what was going to be said. Um so yeah, in hindsight, yes, I'm sure. But um, I think we did try, like when we were designing the questions, we did try to have a very balanced, like, what are some benefits? What are some challenges? You know, but, like the questions weren't all like, <laughs> how is technology harming your life? <laughs> um, yeah, certainly not. But, but yeah, I think with, uh, with any qualitative study there, and probably any quantitative study too, there's an element of bias in the, in the approach, right? So sure. I mean, one of the reasons it's fresh in my mind is because for the previous chapter, the chapter on adolescence, uh, the episode that I recently recorded with someone from the Oxford Internet Institute working on adolescence and well-being, uh, digital well-being, is because there's so much around that that involves emotionally driven and expecting bad things and expecting it to be worrying and that kind of coming through in research design. And then sometimes even when the research design is fine, it's just not designed to show one causes the other popular media or other people extrapolate from it to say it is, this is causing that. And it's just because we're really always freaking out about the potential interface between teens and tech. And uh, there's so much danger of skewing it. But I think you make such a good point about being a practitioner. I think is one of the bits in the chapter, I say, again, three quarters, at least of couples who've come into my practice over the last who knows how many years were there at least in part because of something somebody was doing on a phone, something somebody found on a phone, you know, so it, it it's always, it feels like it's always involved. And so it's almost like that parable about all the blindfolded people trying to identify what they're touching, whether they're touching different parts of the elephant when you're in the therapy room and people are coming into you with challenges, it's easy to assume, all right, you know, you've got a skewed view towards technology being problematic. Um, but it's not the case. I can think of so many ways, not just in romantic relationships, but in familial relationships or friend relationships where technology is clearly enhancing of connection and really relationally deep connection potentially with technology. Absolutely. We interviewed people who were in long distance relationships, right? And um, I mean, technology was critical to their 
relationship. And so they, they talked about that, like how it was nice to, even though they were far apart, like they could have instant connection and they could have it in a number of ways. Like they could have video calls. They could go on and play a video game together. They could, you know, um, text, whatever. So, um, yeah, I think, I think recognizing all of those positives is really important. Absolutely. The, um, one of the things I was curious about, of course, in 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 practice, whether I'm working with couples or whether I'm working with people, with individuals who are dealing with anxiety, reassurance seeking is a really big part of anxiety and what maintains anxiety. And it's a very big element, I think, in relationships for people who are anxiously attached. You mentioned the people who, in your practice, who were texting their partner a lot, seeking that connection, seeking that connection, seeking that response. And when it didn't come, there would be a restlessness about it. Um, And so that's my experience with people who I suppose I would identify or they've identified themselves as being anxiously attached, that really questing after connection, often via technology or tracking to check where their partner is or watching the dot going or worrying if they're here instead of there and trying to track them down, messaging, all that kind of stuff. And I was just curious if your anecdotal and the research um, information chimes with that description. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, yeah, that, that piece I think is where, yeah, we have to wonder like how to help, I guess, people with their anxiety so that um, they can have technology in their relationship uh, because it's so um, disruptive for so many people. And yeah, like you were talking about the location checking, that's one that they talked about in the study. And then also I hear in my practice all the time too, like I, you were here, you said you were there, or sometimes, you know, the connect, the dot moves slower than real time. And so then they're freaking out. Like you said, you were leaving, you haven't left yet. And so, um, yeah, I think that kind of, it, it amplifies the anxiety as opposed to reassuring. Right. And so like the checking just honestly, it seems to make it worse. Um, and people talked about that also, like feeling very controlled if they had an anxious partner, um, using those, the, using the the tracking devices or, or using the like red uh, read receipts on texts. Um, they found it actually very controlling and upsetting. Like I can't, I, I can, I can hear the ding of the message coming in, but I'm not even going to look at it because if they know I've looked at it. I don't, I don't have time to respond immediately. They're going to be calling me to say, why am I not responding? Um, all that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that's the real um, challenge with um, I think the current technology and then yeah, being kind of anxiously attached and in a really, in any kind of relationship, it's really, really hard. Yeah. And thinking about it as a, from the practitioner level, more than the researcher level around this and the question that you just said of how to help. And yeah, because of course, often the person who's engaging in that checking and trying to get the reassurance and trying to assuage their anxiety, at least in my experience, can be very, very convinced that this is necessary to do 
the inf- the <laughs> evidence is there that the thing that they're trying to do to help themselves and how they're feeling is actually going the other way. There's always ample evidence of that, but they don't know what else to do. And they and it's it becomes a very um has become a very compelling habitual thing, even when it's clear that it's amplifying distress on both sides, really. And sometimes then driving the partner into shutdown where they might actually turn off the phone, which of course sends the other person nuclear, but the other yeah. person doesn't know what else to do. Yeah. So these are hard conversations to have because as a practitioner, one doesn't want to come off as the arbiter of what is right or wrong or reasonable or unreasonable, but you're looking at it and you're seeing unworkability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. tell me a little bit about your, <laughs> not of course giving you know away any sort of confidential information, but just in general sorts of terms, What's a practitioner to do, a practitioner who's committed not to counseling in terms of or, or saying you need to do this or that's wrong or whatever it is, because that's not what I consider, you know, kind of at least real couples work to be. But sometimes you're sitting there as a practitioner thinking, okay, this anxious, you know, this person is anxious, they're getting more anxious. This person is going into avoidant mode to try to solve the problem. And what do I say? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think in those conversations, at least, you know, what I try to do is kind of back up from the, from the behavior, right. And look at what's happening with the feelings and the need for reassurance and the need for safety in the relationship. Right. So sometimes I I think it's challenging because depending on the situation, you don't want to, um, replicate the dynamic that's perhaps not functional for the couple right but i think hearing that hearing fear and hearing worry and hearing concern is easier than being called 800 times <laughs> in five minutes or being followed or or what have you and then to highlighting for the person who's anxious um you know what are what are they anxious about where's the fear what's what's happening if this is truly supposed to be a connected person a safe person for them where's the, like where what's getting triggered what is the the fear um or the arousal that's happening where's that coming from and so trying to understand the why why the behavior and to hear each other kind of on more more of an emotional um, feeling level, I think helps kind of tone down the reactivity and the uh, frustration that happens with the checking and, and the behavior. Um, yeah, I don't, I think, I think I agree. I think they're often, I feel like couples are coming to me saying like prescribe like behavior modification <laughs> to make this better. And it's funny. Cause I, I, I don't do that. The only thing I have, I'll ever say is, um, you know, if you're texting feelings, I want to know why, right? So if I, texting information makes sense to me. Like I'll pick you up at this time. I'll do that at this time. But why are we texting feelings? Why are we having important conversations over text? What's so scary about engaging in person? And how can we do that better? How can I help you make it feel safer to just talk about the things that are worrying you or the things that you have conflict about? Um, so really working with them to kind of like move those conversations if if it feels safe 
into real time. And if it doesn't feel safe, why figuring out why and how can we make it safer to, to have those conversations? Because I will, I'll often tease my, the couples I work with, uh, like, you know, here, here, because they, they often so many things get lost in translation too, right? Like you didn't respond, therefore you hate me or, you know? yeah, and like get activated. And so we'll, we'll kind of talk through that and like, you know, does that like, is your sense of reality accurate in those moments or like what's getting inflamed here and why, and how are you feeling? And what makes it hard to just say these things in real time with one another? Um, I think the fascinating thing, and maybe this is going off on a tangent, but I think one of the things that always interests me is how many couples to, are committed to telling me that they can't have these conversations in real time because they don't have time. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. But like, you know, but life is busy. We have kids, we have commitments, we have competing schedules. So we have to have these important conversations over text. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. That to me feels a bit like of a kind of deflection of of conflict and 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 connection, um, which I think we can do very easily in our like world today. Like it's easy to say, I'm too busy to insert whatever the thing is here. Um, but to me, if you're going to have a relationship and you want to have safe connection, you need to move these things into real time as much as possible, mm-hmm. um, because then you'll function much better in it. Like in texting and in communicating virtually as well. Absolutely. You know, I think, and that you're highlighting something very important that the technology, the devices are always there as a readily available buffer, as a readily available avoidance mechanism, as a readily available. And, and I, and, and here, and then we get into this peculiar situation where exactly as you say, the kinds of conversations that are getting prioritized, like the tech mediated conversations, the ones stripped of all the context, the ones where maybe you're not able to hear tone of voice, the ones where you're not able to see each other, the ones where the likelihood of a successful connected conversation are actually much lower are the ones that people are reverting to. But I think that these these things around risk, around intimacy, around taking a chance, around really making yourself vulnerable more fully to a partner in a physically co-present way. It's it's these things are hard and they can be messy and they're not always easy to do and they involve emotions that we might be afraid to feel, emotions that we might be afraid to show someone else. And so with such an easily readily available buffer there, people often take that because it feels like the easier path, but it doesn't give you the opportunity to grow those skills and grow that and become more willing, become more able to do the uncomfortable stuff, which is inevitable in a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, and so um, we've talked about a variety of different ways that tech comes into people's relationships. We've talked about the kind of calibrating the overwhelm, uh, kind of avoiding the, some of the stuff that feels hard or using the tech to try to do some of the heavy lifting, <laughs> but then not really sort of succeeding in getting the connection that people want. We've talked about the surreptitious stuff like the the tracking 
And um, do you have time to mention things that you may have encountered in your practice or in your research with respect to the secret or the surreptitious um, surveillings? So the things that people might be doing sneakily such that they're in a difficult position where they might find something that either they're not happy about or they're not sure about. They encounter something ambiguous and they don't really know if it's anything, but to address it would entail confessing that you have been uh, snooping. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm very conscious that um, this often feels like a very hurtful thing within a relationship, but I'm also conscious a lot of people don't explicitly net negotiate boundaries around technology and devices and accounts that it kind of um, sometimes it hasn't been made explicitly clear within a couple, what feels okay and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I, I, again, I think this comes up all the time. The place where I hear it most is when there's been a discovery of some sort of infidelity, like emotional cheating or, or an affair or, or what have you. Um, but yeah, there's, I think often this like constant checking of the phone. And then once there has been a breach of trust, like it, it almost solidifies the, like the need or the reason for snooping and looking at the phone or looking at the, the messages. Um, and I think for some, some couples will say like, we, we look at each other's phones. That's fair game. We always like, you can look at my phone. I can look at your phone. We don't care. Um, and then th- they've kind of contracted or that, or they, they're, it's, it's kind of implicit. They don't mind. And then certainly there's others where it's like, I don't want you looking at my phone. I don't want you, which then I think raises alarm or suspicion. Um, and I think if you're already insecure, um, you might be on your partner's phone and yeah, there's literally nothing there. Um, or I feel like you say there might be something where there's some, like a, a message that they raises, raise an alarm. Um, you know, I've had uh, clients tell me that their partner had, was having an affair and they had their, um, uh, person they were texting with as like, Jim's tire repair or like something very sneaky uh, to kind of hide the fact because they knew their partner was checking their phone. And so they tried to put it as something that they wouldn't look at or pay attention to. But then why are there 500 messages from Jim's tire repair um, on my on my phone that I'm looking at? And so it's I find this one so hard because um, if there's been a breach of trust, um, how do you rebuild that trust if they're if they're planning to work through that? How do you re like establish or reestablish safety in their and in the couple um, when there's been that breach? And how where does the phone lie at all of that? Right. So I, I'll often hear people say, "Well, I don't even feel the need or the compulsion to check the phone anymore." So that's how I know I'm doing well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which makes sense to me. Like if you feel safe, you feel more secure you feel like you can trust your partner. You don't, you're not grabbing their phone every time they fall asleep to make sure that they're not messaging someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I find it challenging because then to the, the other, the partner who's had the indiscretion of whatever kind feels very attacked, feels very followed, feels very distrusted, um, feels very upset by this dynamic that's happening. And like, what were you doing on my phone anyways? How could you? Um, it feels like its own kind of breach of, of trust and privacy, right? So, and I mean, in terms of the way the dynamic then plays out, 
it, it's like parent and naughty child or probation officer and parolee or exactly you're not, you're not my partner anymore you're yeah you're my yeah you're my parent telling me i'm you know i shouldn't should or shouldn't be doing certain things and checking up on me and you know it's an icky thing yeah and like a lot of children when parents do are doing that actual children parents are doing that then sometimes the response is a kind of rebellious pushback kind of response. And then you get, you find the couple getting further and further away. Um, there was a, there was a couple, a, a celebrity couple whom I confess I didn't know, but it appeared that they were some kind of um, had some sort of celebrity status. It may have been the footballer and, you know, the partner, and there had been some breach of trust, some sort of infidelity, and they told some publication about how they have this in, this instituted, you know, that there's this policy that the sinned against person is allowed to check the sinner's, you know, phone anytime. And I could swear at some point that this was negotiated within couples therapy. And I found myself wondering, and I think I have been in this situation before where a couple in front of me has come to some sort of arrangement, like because he has done wrong or because she has done wrong, I'm allowed to check. And it doesn't feel like a great way <laughs> adopting that kind of dynamic of regaining or building perhaps a healthy adult to adult type relationship that accountability, punitive, suspicious dynamic and you're like you say where does the phone sit and all that mm. yeah yeah and how do you how do you support especially when there's still a lot of anger like how do you push or move through the anger um to get to a place where yeah that's even a desire right to want to want to like you say have an adult to adult relationship that's built on trust and connection and communication um and it's oftentimes i feel like yeah people feel very far away from that um, in those moments. And so that they're wanting to say like, yeah, you, I can look at the phone as much as I want. Like, well, how helpful is that? Right. I don't know. Mm. And you know, what occurs to me is that in situations like that, the phone or whatever is on the phone may constitute the evidence, the hard evidence, but it's like, there's, probably reason enough within that couple in terms of what's going on for them, for them to be expressing dissatisfaction or communicating things to one another. There's lots of other things is what I'm saying, like that have been, yeah. may have been problematic or troublesome or not working in the relationship. And that's fodder enough to be addressing, you know, and, 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 and dealing with. And then, you know, so some people will be having a crap relationship for five, seven, 10 years, but then it's only when the evidence is on the phone that the person then goes, aha, okay, now I'm out kind of thing. And then the story is because of what I found on the phone, then therefore I left. And then you're sort of thinking, okay, even without the checking and even without the hard evidence, there was already stuff here, <laughs> plenty of stuff here to work on and discuss. Um exactly. Exactly. That makes me think of uh, Esther Perel's state of affairs, right? Like there's, there's a whole history here that, <laughs> that leads up to the actual indiscretion. And so what is, but I, yeah, people, I think there is avoidance <laughs> to talk about all of that, right? And it's more like, what's this 
hard evidence that I've found and how can we hyper-focus on that? Um, oh, exactly. That, and then yeah. that becomes the star of the show or the story or the causal yes. thing when actually the story is so much more complex and long-winded and nuanced than that, you know, but it's, it's so interesting how back in the day, people might've had to scrape together the funds to hire some kind of private investigator to follow the person around and photograph and everything like that. And now the the phone is essentially the compiler of all this information um and but then then ends up being like oh we broke up because of this and I'm thinking well actually wasn't you're right esther perel's amazing book I, I love her i love her podcast my gosh that's a real master class in couples therapy right yeah. there that's an amazing. amazing, amazing podcast. Anything else spring to mind, Kara, in terms of other, I mean, you mentioned uh, that a lot of the couples that we've mentioned, some of them did uh, couples that sort of cited particularly positive examples of how technology had really helped them communicate, be close. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking of like one example that comes to mind, you know, with in cases where there's been disconnection um, and, you know, couples are working at reconnection and reestablishing intimacy uh, can actually be a nice way, right. To send in the middle of the day, thinking of you, you know, little, me- little love messages, um, little moments of connection, showing the other person that, yeah, they're holding them in mind, um, even though they're not together at that particular point point um i've seen that be really helpful for people and like really meaningful um yeah in the study people talked about yeah certainly connection over distance being really useful um or like even just from a like purely logistical place like we we run our lives better as a couple thanks to technology it makes it easier easier for us to be a team to be on the same page to know what's happening um yeah, share yeah, calendars and things like that don't necessarily always have to be just boring or tedious or whatever. It's almost like technology can do some of the work for you, the transactional logistical stuff, so that then mm-hmm. when you do have time together, together, maybe you don't have to spend a whole bunch yeah. of time going through household or diary admin because you know, you're able, you've got some system Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think those are the ones that come to mind that people talked about, um, which I think are um, very important. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, one final thing that occurs to me, the only thing that I can think that we haven't really touched on to some degree, and that has to do with the frequency with which in, of course, the, you know, smartphone uh, penetration globally is massive. You know, it's like 92% globally or something like that. And of the people that own them, a huge percentage of those charge them on their nightstands, their bedside tables. So uh, very few people pursue the lofty goal of a gadget-free bedroom because it's everything. It's the, it's the clock, it's the alarm, it's the radio, it's the whatever. So here are people uh, they're in bed together and each of them has a phone on their side of the bed is often sort of a typical kind of case. Do you encounter very much in your practice around fubbing, the phone snubbing, entering the bedroom and the sexual arena? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in a word. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, people talk about that a lot. Like, um, and 
yeah, uh, like giving an example too of, um, and I'm guilty of this myself sometimes, like having the television on and being like scrolling on your phone, like not even being able to attend to one thing, right? Like having to always have the phone as being part of it, getting into bed with your phone and your partner, right? Um, as opposed to just getting into bed with your partner. Um, people complain about that a lot and struggle with how to have um, healthy, I guess, kind of healthy boundaries with it. One of the things that comes up a lot in the conversations that I have with people about it is that people find their phones, like you say, they kind of are catch-alls. So we'll find them really like, sometimes they're like doing their meditation app before bed, or they're like, they're trying to do something like calming or useful for them. Or sometimes they're just doom scrolling or whatever, but like they're, they're using it for all these different purposes. And so they also feel irritated when their partner is like, you're always on your phone, like get off your phone. Well, my phone is actually part of my business or my phone is actually what I use to calm down or, or these other things. So kind of placing the phone in this, like always a negative shouldn't be in the bedroom or shouldn't be on the couch or shouldn't be in these certain places. I think people get really up irritated because they feel so connected to it for so many different reasons and so many different things. It's so multifaceted for them. So yes, I hear about it interrupting intimacy all the time. Um, and, you know, we used to talk about like televisions in the bedroom, but yeah, now everyone gets into bed with their own mini televisions. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's, and it, you're right. It's the book, it's the meditation app, you know, and there, I, there are so many useful, of course, insomnia is an, was an epidemic really these days. And it's so paradoxical with phones because with phones might be part of the factors that go into people's insomnia, but they're also one of the things that's counteracting people's insomnia through sleep apps and breathing apps and all those kinds of things. And you're right. Sometimes the phones do get tarred with, uh, with a bad brush, you know, by the, the partner. Um, but it's, it is really, it is really, it's really challenging because, uh, you know, I, I don't even, I haven't seen an actual alarm clock on a bedside table. They've even done away with them in hotel rooms, haven't they? I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. And certainly people will say the benefits of, yeah, kind of a digital detox, right? Like going without phones in your room or going without phones for a certain amount of time or, or tech in general. Um. But yeah, I think, again, it has to be something we don't like things being taken away from us, right? So it's nature. So how do you talk about these things as mutually beneficial for couples in terms of creating intimacy? Um, or I have couples who use phones as part of their intimacy, um, you know, apps that send them questions that they send each other, like intimate questions, Um who they are in the world and what they want in their relationship. And they use those, in, you know, ways. so I, I think it's, it's hard to, we can't categorically say they're bad here. Or they're good here. We kind of have to live in that world of gray and, and how people kind of articulate what works for them kind of together. Right. And, and, and what feels right for them. Yeah, context is everything. And, and that's why it can be so frustrating when whether it's media or just anybody else asking, are the is, is this good or bad for relationships? Is this good or bad for a positive or negative impact? And it is completely dependent on 
individuals, on individual couples, on how they're using it, how deliberately or mindfully they're using it, whether they're using it in ways that align them, you know, or whether they're using it in ways that actually disconnect by design. Like when, for example, somebody's avoiding, maybe even avoiding physical or sexual intimacy, they'll use the phone almost as a buffer. Yeah, for yeah, that I because <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They might be experiencing a different level of sexual desire than they once did, or a different level of sexual desire than their partner has, and they kind of use the phone as something to uh, stand in the way, you know, of having to deal with that kind of situation of navigating that with their partner. Uh, so, yep, the tech comes into play in all sorts of different ways. Um, dependent on those couples any final thoughts that you have before we wrap up Kara? i don't think so thank you for such a generative interesting discussion it's so nice to talk to someone who's also a practitioner who works with couples who's observed some of the same things that i've observed i'm elaine casket and you've been listening to the podcast episode linked to the adulthood chapter of reboot reclaiming your life in a tech-obsessed world, which is out now. Check e-tailers and retailers where you are. The chapter covers a lot more beyond attachment and tech use in adult relationships. It also gets into cyberstalking, creeping, fubbing, and various types of intimate partner hacking and snooping and surveillance. For the middle adulthood linked podcast episode, which is coming up very soon, I'm talking to two people who are in professions that I also practice and which are close to my heart to include creative writing and psychotherapy. And I'm going to be speaking to them about artificial intelligence and how AI is going to be affecting and is affecting those professions as part of a greater meditation on artificial intelligence, the world of work, and linking to themes of the middle adulthood chapter in Reboot. So that is going to be dropping soon. Stay tuned and take care. Till then.